This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. So, Gee, as you know, this week we're going to do something a little different because, spoiler alert, we are off for the holidays. So we've compiled some of the best moments of our inaugural year of Dear Culture under the theme, Family First. That's right. It's been an honor to have these tough conversations over these past few months, and we can't wait to continue these conversations in 2021. So I think for me, one thing that this year has reaffirmed is that we need to maintain the strength of the family unit in order to weather any storm. We compiled a couple of audio clips from previous episodes that detail the significance of resilience and love in the Black family, especially the Black woman. I mean, at a time like this, when parents are tasked with not only educating their kids, but kind of coaching them through all of this unrest, all of this uncertainty, trying not to give off the energy that we're all feeling. I mean, I've cried more this week. I've answered more phone calls from my strong friends, right? From the women who don't cry, from the women that I call when I'm crying. And they're crying and they're devastated and they're scared and they're angry. And it's been really hard to you know put on a smile and carry on and i think that parents right now are kind of pulling double duty because we're all doing that with our jobs we're all doing that with our peers and you know we who are at home with our kids are having to do it for them and it's a non-stop 24 7 job just to cope with what's going on in the news right definitely so before we get into why the kids are not all right right now i'm going to talk about a kid that is doing pretty all right and that is marley diaz if you don't know who marley is she's an amazingly talented smart 15 year old teenager who is also the star of a new series from netflix called bookmarks celebrating black voices And what it is, is basically 12 five-minute episodes. You can watch them with your kids. You can sit your kids down to watch them while, you know, you go finish up dinner. But what it does is really explore all of the resources that there are for our kids, especially when it comes to books, where they can see themselves represented. And so all of the books that they read are from Black authors. And there's a long list of really great celebrities who are going to read them to your kids. So you don't have to. Marley is also the founder of 1000 Black girl books campaign that's a collection of books and conversations that she has with kids all around the world on the internet so that they can feel supported and uplifted and seen whether they're in preschool or high school and a few of the celebrities that are participating in this incredible series are tiffany haddish caramel brown lupita nyong'o kendrick sampson just to name a few and luckily one of the perks of my job is that sometimes i get to sample some of the cool things that are going on in the world So I wanted you guys to take a look behind me are a few of the books from that collection that Netflix was so kind to send me. And I can't tell you how excited my daughter was just to see a cover like this. This one is by Grace Byers, I Am Enough. And it's like a beautifully illustrated book. There's a girl that looks like my daughter right on the cover. And, you know, representation goes such a long way when we're talking about kids. And My kids are four and five, and I hate to admit it, but we've already had the conversations of, I don't want to be black. Why do I have to be black? None of the princesses are black. Nobody looks like me. 
I want to be white like Cinderella, like Rapunzel. And as a mother to a little black girl, that is so devastating to hear, especially when I think I take for granted how many positive images there are of us kind of permeating my feet. What's in her feet? You know, what is on Nickelodeon and Disney and what's on our bookshelves at school? It's usually not these. I actually have a son too, and he loves this book. It's called Crown, an Ode to the Fresh Cut, written by Derek Barnes and illustrated by Gordon C. James. And I mean, he got such an incredible kick out of this because it was the first time that he's seen something that's a weekly kind of tradition in our house spelled out in a book. And, you know, when he's back in school, he can show his friends, like, what it's like for him. Because it's certainly, however slight, a very different experience than the ones that, you know, his little white boyfriends have at school. And it's so gratifying to know that we can start from the beginning with these kinds of positive images. And I mean, they even have got it. Look, here's the answer to Avery's question. I wish I had this four years ago. Pretty Brown Face by Andrea and Brian Pinkney. This is how young they need to see themselves. This is how young they need to celebrate themselves. This is how young they need to normalize being black in this world instead of going to school for the first time and realizing that shit looks different here than it does at home. So I'm, I'm so proud of Netflix. I'm so proud of Marley for the work that they're continuing to do, whether it's for all of us or for the kids. But I think right now, more than ever, we need content that we can consume as a family. We need to see Black joy highlighted and illuminated and celebrated. And, you know, this is one small step that you can take to start that with your kids, whether they're in school or at home right now. As you mentioned, we did talk about teaching and and the risks that teachers face in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. And this is what she had to say about it. Of course, I share these concerns and these fears and, you know, not only for our children, but our dedicated educators. Can we just give it up to them that in the midst of this pandemic, they were very nimble out of commitment to their students and, you know, transition to online learning uh, with little supports to do that. You know, I fear for them and their families as well. Anyone who's a part of the learning community from custodians to food service to educators to administrators. And again, because we have not made those investments in social emotional wellness supports, we have charged our educators with not only being educators, but often being social workers. And now we're asking them to be caseworkers. And, and might I say, might, in some instances, they have had to be martyrs. Because we saw those educators, I believe it was in Arizona and one of the early states to, to be experiencing the surges, that lost their lives. We're already asking our educators to teach our children, to be social workers, to be mental health clinicians because we have not invested in social emotional wellness supports. And now we're asking them to be uh, caseworkers and to manage a public health crisis and pandemic. And so our reopening of our schools has to be driven by science. It has to be driven by data. And to be reopening our schools in the midst of a surge, and we see in Florida alarming hospitalizations of school-aged children, this simply cannot stand. And so what has to happen in the absence of leadership from this federal administration, the Trump administration, who said that they believe their role is to be the backstop. Imagine that in the midst of a pandemic, they have been quote unquote leading from behind. So we've been behind from the very beginning because of their science denials, their criminal negligence, and their sluggish response. And you know, I just don't know if they're just cruel, 
callous, clueless, or all three. But our decisions to reopen states, to reopen schools, must be guided by science and data. And so in the absence of leadership from the Trump administration, this GOP-led Senate, where this Democratic majority House has moved multiple bipartisan relief bills, including investments to support online learning, to ensure that it continues to be continuous, that there isn't learning loss, that we do not contribute to the achievement gap, to ensure that once the data and the science supports reopening, that our schools can do that safely and have the resources they need to retrofit infrastructure and do things like that. But this is just pre too premature of a move and a conversation against the backdrop of surges throughout our country when we still don't have a vaccine. Such an important point for the parents of Black children, and that is that we have this constant need to ingrain certain, um, you know, survival skills into them. And when your kids are forced to be confined to their homes, how do you teach them that? How do you teach them compassion for others when there are no others? How do you teach them how to navigate, you know, injustice and, you know, rude comments and, you know, racist issues when there are truly no other people around them. And depending on the grade that your children are in, this is really the setting the foundation for how they see life. So there's this whole other emotional and socialization worry that we've got going about our kids. And like, what kind of actual humans are we capable of raising, you know, within four walls of an apartment? Talk about what it means to be a Black father. What kind of conversations fathers are having with their children and what we need to do to ensure that the next generation of Black kids are aware of what's happening around the world, what's happening around the country, and how they can be supported and loved. You know, Todd, I know that I don't have kids quite yet, uh, but you are a father. How have you been processing uh, the recent events going on across the country and what kinds of conversations uh, do you want to have with your son someday soon? Man, that is, that's a tough question. I'm all over the place with that because there are so many moments where as a father, uh, I just want to, I just want to turn away. I just want to turn away from the news and, you know, give my son who is about to be four uh, next month. I just want to give him a hug, just give him a hug and, and tell him that, you know, tell him sorry that the, the world is the way that it is. Because again, he didn't do anything to deserve to sort of grow up in this kind of climate. And then on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm blessed and fortunate that I'm in his life. He has a loving uh, family around him. He has all of the support in the world. And so it, I kind of I kind of have to snap out of it and, and get back into father mode and we will get through this mode. So I'm sort of dismayed and, and pained on one end, but I'm incredibly optimistic and hopeful because you know, I know that as he gets older, he'll be the one, um, you know, making the change that uh, I will be proud of 20, 30, 40 years from now. So I, I never really knew that it was going to be like this when he was born. I, I just didn't I didn't put it all together, man. You grow up and you just think you just think life happens. You know, you don't know what your father is going through um, as you're growing up other than, you know, your plan and 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 going through life and school and just kind of living living it up as best you know how. But now as a father, you're not only processing what you go through on a day-to-day -day basis, you are trying to sort of 
live live your life and shield your son from everything that he has to face in the world. So um, it's a it's it's not even a burden, man. It's it's a role of responsibility and something that. I have fear and optimism for, if that makes sense. That's very powerful. I have to say, you know, Father's Day, it can be a little depressing for me because, you know, I lost my father. Todd, I know you lost your father as well. And I just want to also give a word to those who are grieving on Father's Day. Um, You know, something that's been very helpful for me over the years is to focus on the love that me and my father shared. Sometimes I think that when you lose a parent, or lose a loved one, you think so much about what you lost. And uh, what I try to do is focus more on what I actually had and what I still have. You know, that energy, you know, it stays with you for the rest of your life. Those memories stay with you for the rest of your life. How has Father's Day been for you, Todd, without your dad? Gee, uh, it's tough, man. It, it is tough, G. Um, I hear what you're saying about focusing on the time shared. I lost um, my dad to colon cancer when I was 26. I'm 34 now. And so these last eight years, it's been up and down. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about grieving and what that meant uh, to lose him at that age. Uh, but, you know, one thing, and you said it yourself just there, and one thing my dad always told me is to be grateful, to be grateful and to cherish the times together because he lost his father uh, at a young age uh, to, you know, hypertension and other complications. And he would always just talk about, man, we used to do this. His dad was a postal worker. And he would talk about those memories of being in the back of his dad's, my grandfather's uh, you know, postal truck and taking the work truck to go see football games and um, hanging out with him. So, you know, this the last eight years and this day specifically, sure, it is it is very it's a heavy day. But when I think of the time I spent with him, you know, playing sports, having conversations, laughing eating, uh, traveling, talking with family, spending quality time. That gets me through the day and that gets me through the year. And of course, that's something that I'm going to pass on to my son and impart on my son to cherish all of that time together because those memories you have with loved ones, in this case, your father or my father, our fathers, you'll, you'll never forget that. So when we say Black woman is king, it means so much and there is a lot to unpack here. For me as a Black woman, I think Black woman is king means that we are finally getting the recognition we deserve and the space to be powerful leaders. But I also want to stress that, you know, we are human as well. I think Black women are so often depicted as superhuman and strong. And I think it's important to point out our regalness, our softness, and our humanity. We had a chance to hear from our listeners about what they thought about this episode's theme of Black woman is king. And here's what they had to say. Hi, my name is Mariah. I am originally from New York, now living in Jersey. The slogan, Black woman is king, means to me that we are of the most high, that we bear a heavy responsibility. We are lovers, we are leaders, we are protectors, but most importantly, we are in need of being protected. Hi, my name is Jordina and I am Eritrea, Ethiopian, Habesha. I grew up in Germany and I live in Harlem now. And uh, black woman is king means to me royal royalty. Hi, my name is Ilbo J. Sanchez and I am co-founder of Garson Couture. What does the slogan black woman is king mean to me? It means the resilience that they carry and perseverance they are born with. 
being able to move mountains like no other and stand with so much power day in and day out, leaving legacies that stand the test of time. Hi, I am Alicia Reese, CEO of 360 Gateway Brands, originally from Sarasota, Florida. And to me, Black Woman is King is a rallying call. It is a reminder to ourselves that every single nation was birthed from our loins and from our womb. Our history did not begin at slavery, yet what was meant for evil, we have now transformed it to and for our good. Never forget that you create, you build, you execute, and you deliver the best. Excellence is all we know. So since most of us have spent a lot of time at home this year, which personally I didn't object to, but (laughs) we really got a chance to be nostalgic and watch some classic black television. And this next clip, we went black in the day. One of my favorite shows, A Different World, has been credited by some for being one of the largest contributing factors to Black people enrolling into college in the 1990s. Was this life imitating art or art imitating life? What do you guys think? Well, for me, I think it was in many ways art imitating life. I think over the course of the 90s especially, you saw a big influx of Black people attending college. A lot of them are first generation. And so I think, I don't know, I've also heard people say they were motivated to attend college by watching a different world. So maybe it was kind of a mixture of both. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Was Hillman an HBCU? I distinctly remember looking for that when it was time for me to apply for colleges. And then now I can't quite decide if I remember it as being an HBCU or or were we just looking at the students of color at a predominantly white institution? No, it was definitely always an HBCU. So for those of us who followed all things like Cosby and, you know, like all of that back in the day. So, you know, you remember from a Cosby show, you would always see Heathcliff, because that's how I'm going to refer to him, Heathcliff wearing these various like sweatshirts from these different HBCUs, right? And then you got the background story of Heathcliff and, and Claire that they met each other while at Hillman. And it was an HBCU. It was also like there was a whole thing of when Denise was picking what college that she was going to actually go to and Grandpa Russell had to come in and basically explain to her you know why this is such a huge thing and just even going beyond the whole idea of like you know just going to college and all the other stuff and what is it that HBCUs can bring to you. As a graduate of an HBCU, shout out to Spelman, number one, (laughs) you know I can say like all of that stuff definitely resonated with me. I think as a kid watching a different world just put so many things in perspective for me. One, it definitely let us know like white people can attend HBCUs. If you don't remember, you know, season one had that one uh, lonely white girl, I believe her name was Maggie, Uh, (laughs) you know, and that was always a complex character (laughs) to me. I wasn't really that interested in her, but fine. And then, you know, you saw from after season one, when Denise or rather Lisa Bonet left the show, you know, and they started to focus more on Whitley and Dwayne. And it was just so amazing to see. I can say, honestly, I was inspired to go to college. I specifically chose Spelman College. My top three choices were all HBCUs. It was Spelman, Howard, and FAMU. I applied to many other different schools, but I was like, any of these three pick me, I'm going.
You know, as a single person, I must say it made me really happy and optimistic listening to all. Inaendeshwa na Afripods.